Well, good morning, uh, Cornerstone family. Good morning. Um, you know, the, uh, the Cudney dinner table is mostly polite in the evenings, uh, or would be in theory if we didn't have two preteen boys. Once the jokes start rolling, about toots or burps, it just goes downhill from there. And uh, let me tell you, when uh, Tony assigned the verses for teaching today, I hit the jackpot in terms of devotions with our family. Every guy that uh, is quickly reading through the verses, I see you squirming a little bit. You just sat up a little bit straighter, so I'm glad I have your attention. The uh, Cornerstone Men's Study has been working through systematic theology as a follow-up to the Creed series we did last summer. The early church affirmed right belief, or orthodoxy. They studied, they defended, they protected doctrine, and so do we. It's part of our mission to preach and practice the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're not seeking to puff ourselves up with knowledge, the details of who God is, what he's like, our view of humanity, our history and future. They all matter because we want him and we love him. As part of the study, the men completed a survey on the state of theology, which is the same survey that's conducted biannually by Ligonier Ministries of over 3,000 Americans. Now, we know that our society has moved towards a post-Christian culture. So many of the results aren't that surprising. I'm just going to give you a couple. The divine origin and complete accuracy of the Bible is rejected by more than 50%, being a helpful account of ancient myth. The deity and exclusivity of Jesus Christ are increasingly being rejected. 67% agree that God accepts the worship of all religions. And more than 50% believe God learns as he goes, meaning God is not all-knowing. So I filtered down to the evangelical responses. The survey defines evangelicals as those being uh, individuals who strongly agreed with the following four criteria. The Bible is the highest authority for what I believe. It is very important for me personally to encourage non-Christians to trust Jesus Christ as their Savior. Jesus Christ's death on the cross is the only sacrifice that could remove the penalty of my sin. Only those who trust in Jesus Christ alone as their Savior receive God's free gift of eternal salvation. And I added one additional criteria, that they attend church one or more times a week, just to further narrow the population down from 3,000 to 482 respondents. The results were pretty astonishing. More than 70% said that Jesus is the first and greatest being created by God. You hear that? 70% said that Jesus was created by God. 39% said Jesus was a great teacher, but he was not God. 61% said everyone is born innocent in the eyes of God. And almost 40% disagreed that the smallest sin 
deserves eternal damnation. What wasn't as shocking is evangelicals' sexual ethic, including abortion, sex outside of marriage, and gender, are more affirmed than much of the essentials of biblical doctrine. In case our reaction is, but not us. We did our own survey, and some of the results were not that far off from the evangelicals that were surveyed. Now, it'd be easy to have strong opinions or convictions about what has contributed to these results, about the condition of the church, culture, where we're headed. But I'd remind us to turn back a couple pages to the beginning of Galatians, where we started our series. Unlike Paul's other letters that start with a warm greeting, the Galatians received no expression of gratitude to God for them or words of encouragement about their spiritual walk, which is a custom to how Paul would typically start his letters. Chapter 1, verse 8 says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. The same pitfalls that were present 2,000 years ago are still present today. First, the gospel of salvation preached to the Galatians and to us is exclusive. It's by grace alone, received through faith alone, in Christ Jesus alone. And second, the cross of Christ was offensive then and still is now. The world and the gospel of Jesus Christ are both unchanged. Spurgeon said there's no reason to believe that it is any more palatable now than it used to be. Now, as we come to the text today, we're going to be learning from God through Paul how to identify false teachers and how we should respond to them. Paul's language is a bit jarring for good reason because the effect here is eternal. So if you're able, go ahead and stand and, and lead Let's uh, read the text together. <clears throat> you were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brother, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. Go ahead and be seated. Lord God, we come before you today. We thank you for your word. Your word is truth. Help the Spirit uh, just to reveal this to our hearts. Speak through me. Hide me behind the cross. We love you and pray this in your Son's name. Amen. As we start in on this uh, passage, the first identification of a false teacher is someone who hinders us from obeying the truth of the gospel. A false teacher is someone who hinders us from obeying the truth of the gospel. Verse 7 says, you were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? 
We see here one of Paul's typical metaphors of running a race, which he uses throughout his letters to illustrate the believer's journey of faith and obedience and his own. Philippians 2.16 says, Holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. The illustration Paul uses in Galatians isn't solo training. This is race day. If you've ever been part of a cross-country race, a turkey trot, or some other running event, everyone lines up before the starting line, packed in together. You're shoulder to shoulder. You're eagerly awaiting the countdown to hit zero. And then the gun goes off. The runners in the front take off, and eventually the pack thins out as you set your pace. Your breathing is focused. You're monitoring your pace. You're running the race you've trained for. But imagine that as you're running, someone comes beside you and cuts you off, and not by accident. This is intentional interference. Someone is trying to take you out of the race. Verse 7 is clear. They were hindered from obeying the truth. Because Paul already used the truth to describe the gospel twice in chapter 2, Paul means that the Galatians were hindered from obeying the truth of the gospel. The gospel is the good news of salvation by grace through faith in Christ alone. Trusting in Christ's death for forgiveness of sins and resurrection of new life. The Galatians started well, secure in their belief in Christ. His death on the cross taking the punishment for their sins and his resurrection from the dead securing their future. They're at risk now of being knocked off course by outsiders who have brought them to the brink of defection. We've recently seen the passing of Tim Keller. He's one of the leaders that I deeply respect. I've sat under and been extremely blessed to witness his faithful, genuine, and humble modeling of Christ-like witness and leadership, especially in his final years. I held my breath for a moment when he passed, wondering and hoping that there wouldn't be some hidden sin coming to light. I'm thankful that wasn't the case, and for the outpouring of grateful tributes to his life, preaching, friendship, and mentorship, which emphasized the character and the conduct of a faithful teacher. He certainly fought the good fight, finished the race, and kept the faith. Now, the second identification of a false teacher is someone that corrupts sound doctrine. Someone that corrupts sound doctrine. Verse 8 and 9. This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. Now, false teachers twist and distort the gospel. These were not well-intentioned teachers. Verse 8 says that they were not from God. And chapter 6, verse 12, which we'll see in a couple of weeks, would suggest that their purpose was to gain a following for themselves and to make a good showing in the flesh. The analogy of the leaven reinforces that false doctrine spreads. Just a little leaven, a pinch of yeast, 
when added to the dough, works its way through the whole batch. Paul is telling the Galatians that the yeast is the teaching of the Judaizers. Their yeast was adding works to faith as essential for salvation. The false teachers wanted the Galatians to get circumcised. Circumcision may not seem like a big deal, but if the Galatians allowed themselves to be circumcised, they would actually be reverting to the Mosaic law as a means of attempting to accomplish their own salvation. This would be denying two essential doctrines of atonement and justification, which distorts the gospel of grace. First, they'd be saying Christ's death on the cross was not enough. You need something more to atone for your sins, thus denying the sufficiency of Christ's atonement. 1 Timothy 2, 5-6 says, There is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. Your sin was paid for at the cross. If you're a follower of Jesus. He actually died specifically for you. He had you in mind in eternity before history began. He had you in mind as he went to the cross. And he, he has you in mind now as he sits at the right hand of the Father interceding for you. Second, they'd be saying you could not be justified by faith alone, but only by faith and works. Thus, they'd be denying the biblical doctrine of justification, which Paul has actually already laid out in this letter for us. Galatians 3.26 says, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. Many of us could read this and feel pretty confident that we're not being tempted to add old covenant ceremonies to our faith in Christ. Check. We're good. But the race we're running is not a sprint. This is a marathon through sometimes treacherous terrain. We need to be careful here of going to either side of the path set before us according to God's word. The ditch on one side is similar to that of Christian in Pilgrim's Progress. Christian and his traveling companion, Hopeful, were continuing away from uh, the path they had been on by a river. The going was rough, their feet tender. So the souls of the pilgrims were much discouraged because of the way. As they went on, they wished for a better way. There was on the left hand of the road a meadow and a ladder style going over into it. Christian convinces Hopeful to leave the path for the meadow. They pursue a path according to their wish rather than staying on the path that is marked out by God's word. The journey is easier for a time. And they encounter a traveler on the path who assures them that he also is on the way to the celestial gate. 
But this traveler's name is Vain Confidence. And soon, Christian and Hopeful lose sight of him and find themselves completely lost in the darkness. Like Christian, we can be lured in the same way. If what you're listening to, reading, or being taught would excuse away all the hard-to-obey passages in the Bible as cultural for that time, you need to stop and ask yourself, how does this line up with the truth of Scripture? False teachers tell people what they want to hear and avoid truth. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 3 and 4 tells us, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Now, just as dangerous is the ditch on the other side. If you're told that being justified is through anything other than faith in Christ, perhaps it comes across as following a certain set of extra-biblical rules or voting a certain way. Those who would tempt us to find security in being right about every cultural or doctrinal issue rather than in the person of Jesus Christ must be rejected. 2 Peter 1.3 says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. The process of sanctification that we're going through, it might seem slow or hard to us, but if we're daily looking to Christ, and trusting in his sufficiency, we are running well. Now that Paul has shown us how to identify false teachers, he goes on to tell us how we should respond. Continuing in verse 10, I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. The Galatians have been cut in on, which has caused them to stumble. But Paul's confident that they will regain sure footing and persevere on the right course. His confidence was not in them, though. You see that? It's in the Lord. Philippians 1.6 says, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Last week, we saw the incredibly strong warning in verses 2 through 4. And here we see the warning itself and the response of hearing and clinging to Christ is a means of assurance. 1 Corinthians 1, 8 through 9 tells us that God is faithful. Like a father's grip upon the hand of a child, we can rest knowing he will not let go of us. We are sustained to the end for eternal glorification. That's not the case for those distorting the gospel whose end is eternal judgment. They will be held accountable for every false word that they have spread. In verse 11, it says, 
But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. Paul's addressing here the charge of the Judaizers. We're not actually told what rationale they are using to maintain that Paul was requiring circumcision. If we backtrack to uh, verse 6 that we read last week, it says, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything but only faith working through love. Paul's making it clear that he's not for or against circumcision for social or cultural reasons as long as it was not a requirement for salvation. Salvation is only by grace through faith in Christ alone for which Paul is being persecuted. Thomas Schreiner says, the cross of Christ rejects any and all human attempts to be right with God. Righteousness is found only in what Christ Jesus has done for sinners. The message of the cross is a scandal or a stumbling block because it is an affront to human pride. Human beings take offense in being told that even their best works are stained with evil, that everything they do is insufficient to be right with God, and that the only basis for right standing with God is the cross of Jesus Christ. When we share our love for Jesus and the gospel with our, our friends, our family, our relatives, co-workers, when we're sneered at, ridiculed, dismissed as foolish, we shouldn't be surprised. We're to be obedient in presenting the gospel and praying for the Spirit to illuminate Jesus. In doing so, remember that Jesus and his apostles, they weren't harsh with those that were deceived, but with the deceivers. We're instructed here not to associate with them, give them any space for influence, and cut off any opportunity for them to disrupt those in the body. Now Paul's remarks in verse 12 are a bit shocking. It says, I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. Let's remember that these are not Paul's words, though. These are God's words to us. 2 Peter 1.21 tells us that the authors of Scripture were inspired by God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Some commentators that I read suggest that Paul could be making comparison to a pagan cult of that time that would perform ritual acts of cutting, including self-mutilation. If that's the case, what the Judaizers are requiring is no different than the pagan rituals. Whether referring to paganism, using sarcasm to drive home the point, or tying together his analogy of cutting in on a runner now with cutting off, he's making it emphatically clear that God has zero tolerance for these troublemakers. Now thinking back, to the beginning of this chapter. Paul's making the case for freedom in Jesus Christ. We are no longer under the bondage 
of the law. We can have full confidence of our freedom by grace through faith in Christ alone. Let's continue running well with endurance. Exercising wisdom to identify and reject false teachers and teaching. As we prepare for communion, the question I'd have for us today is, what are you trusting in for the forgiveness of sin and eternal life? What are you trusting in for the forgiveness of sin and eternal life? When we take the symbols of the bread and the cup, we acknowledge that there is nothing we have done. It is all Christ. His body was broken so that we could be set free. And his blood was poured out in our place for the forgiveness of our sins. He's done the inner work of transformation in our hearts. If you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, let me just encourage you to stay where you're at when the rows are actually being dismissed. The bread and the juice are symbols a seal of the promise of grace to believers. They don't actually make us right with God. Instead of partaking in communion, I encourage you to to partake in Jesus. He's the Lord of heaven and earth and all that is under the earth. Confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and you'll be saved. In a moment, you'll be dismissed by row to come and receive the elements. And after the song, Ryan's going to come and lead us in taking communion. Let's go ahead and bow our heads and pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your precious scripture revealed to us. When we are dead in our sins, children of wrath, out of your rich mercy, God, and out of your great love, You made us alive with Christ and raised us with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places. As we come to the communion table, Lord, we ask that the Spirit would sanctify us in truth through your word. Reveal any area of our lives that we've been tempted to add to the person or work of Christ. We submit all of who we are before you. We love you and we pray this. In the glorious name of Jesus, amen.